But we're going to be looking at um, the Holy Spirit tonight. And I think this is a really important uh, study because when you don't understand who the Spirit is, it can lead to an undervaluing of the Spirit's role in your life. Because believe it or not, He's the one that you're most intimately acquainted with, (laughs) is the Holy Spirit. You've got, you know, God the Father, who is in charge of everything, right? And then you've got God the Son, who is the means of our redemption. You've got God the Holy Spirit, who is the one that indwells us. And so He is the one that I think is really important, that we know something about. So, uh, I'm excited for tonight as we study uh, the Holy Spirit. I want to just remind us of why we're studying the Apostles' Creed. These are three very good reasons to be doing the study. The first is it anchors our convictions, the things that we say we believe. So it, it gives us a firm foundation to anchor to. When we say that we're a Christian, um, you know, you, you become a Christian with enough information to realize that that's the right thing for you to do, right? That's what we do. And everybody does that. Nobody gives their life to Christ knowing everything about what it means to be a Christian, right? So then you grow in your knowledge of what that means. What does it really mean to be in Christ, right? What is this life that I now have? And so as you grow in your understanding of that, well, it it anchors your convictions. And so that's one of the reasons we're studying this, because the Apostles' Creed is a, a really good foundational theological statement of what it means to be a Christian, Okay. The second thing it does is it fosters our community. One of the aspects of the Apostles' Creed that we'll be getting into, I believe, next week is uh, the fact that we are a community of faith, right? That the Holy Spirit, and we're talking a little bit about this tonight, actually unites us in Christ as one. And so, therefore, no matter what nationality you are, uh, what gender you are, what age you are, we are united as one throughout the globe and throughout history, and that's an amazing and beautiful thing. So it fosters our community, it draws us together, and it also shapes our confessions. It helps us articulate what it is that we believe, right? So as we get into conversations with people at work or at school or wherever we happen to be, then we can better articulate why it is that we love Jesus, right? And so this is the reasons that we're studying the Apostles' Creed. We'll go ahead and recite this together, and I'll do my best not to lead you astray. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. What a fantastic creed. <laughs> so let's, let's go through it. We're going to be starting off in Ezekiel. So if you've got your Bibles with you and you want to uh, travel along with us tonight, I'm going to be jumping all over the Bible because we're 
learning about something that the Bible talks about throughout the Bible, right? So we're going to, but our main passages are going to be in Ezekiel 36 um, and 37. That's where we're going to start. And then after we're there, we're going to go to John's gospel in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. So those are going to be our two main passages for tonight. And as you guys are finding your way to Ezekiel, I want to mention that uh, Christians enjoy a double blessing in the Holy Spirit. Uh, First of all, uh, God creates a home for himself in us. And this is a really amazing thing. Uh, If you know from the Old Covenant, who can tell me where did God dwell in the Old Covenant with the nation of Israel? Who knows the answer to that? Yeah, in the temple, right? In the Holy of Holies. So... And the center of the temple was the smallest room. It's called the Holy of Holies. And that is where God dwelled. He, d- he dwelled there in the temple. Well, in the new covenant in Christ, he dwells in his people. It says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And so we have this amazing reality that God actually prepares a place for himself in us which is absolutely amazing. And then he also takes up residence there. So he dwells there in us. And this abiding life with God through the indwelling Holy Spirit is the reason that we cannot, cannot go on living in sin. Okay? is because the Holy Spirit comes into us. He now dwells in us. We are now a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that means that we just can't go on living our life the way we did before we came to Christ. Okay? Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. And so we cannot, as Christians... Just go on living in sin if we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we will see this. I don't want to jump too far ahead. One of the things he does is he convicts us of sin. And so it's impossible for us to go on living in sin habitually if we have the Holy Spirit. doesn't mean we're perfect, right? We do sin, right? But we can't just have a lifestyle of sin with the Holy Spirit, okay? And this is the means of our transformed character. So the way in which we as Christians conform to the image of Christ over time, which we will talk about a little bit later, which is known as sanctification, the way that happens is through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 that for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we may walk in them, right? So we were created for these good works and he is doing a work in us and through us so that we may do the things that he has set before us to do. And this was promised long ago. 700 years, in fact, before Jesus showed up on the scene. Ezekiel prophesied, others did as well, but Ezekiel really focused on the aspect of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant promise. Um, other prophets like Jeremiah and, and others spoke of the new covenant promise that would come. But Ezekiel really hones in on the Holy Spirit in that promise. It says in chapter 36, verses 26 and following, it says, And I will give you a new heart 
And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So this is a description of what the new covenant would be like, the covenant that would come after the old one went away, right? And so this was prophesied, and it was he prophesied it right before this amazing vision in chapter 37. You can turn there, chapter 37. And we'll read through the first 10 verses there, but there's this incredible scene of this valley of dry bones that Ezekiel sees that comes to life through breath, which is, as we know, the Holy Spirit, right? So word means the same thing, both in Hebrew and Greek, by the way. We'll talk a little bit more about that. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me uh, down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinew upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And I prophesied and there was a sound and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them. And skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy. To the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So here's this amazing scene that he sees of, what seems to be absolutely impossible, right? This huge valley of nothing but death. And what does God do? He brings it to life. And this is what happens in the new covenant in Jesus Christ, is that we are brought to life spiritually through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Literally, the breath of God comes into us and gives us this radical spiritual life. And that's what this vision is alluding to that will come to pass in the future. You can turn now to John chapter 3. As you're turning there, though, i got another little theology quiz question for you guys. Uh, What is the sign and seal of the Old Covenant in Moses? That's right. Circumcision, right? Circumcision is the sign and seal of the Old Covenant. In Moses, what is the sign and seal of the New Covenant in Jesus Christ? 
Holy Spirit. That's right. It's the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So baptism is reflective of that sign and seal. So the, the, you can kind of say that the physical sign is baptism, but really it's res- resembling what has happened through the Holy Spirit, right? And so the sign and seal of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit doing the circumcision of the heart. That's what Paul says, right? That the way that we are saved is circumcision of the heart through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So now what we are looking at here in John chapter 3 is, of course, everyone knows John 3.16, but we're going to talk about the section before that, okay? And the section before that is where Jesus is having this theological conversation with a guy named Nicodemus, okay? And Nicodemus comes to him, and we're going to read what he says going through these we're actually going to do the 10 verses. Okay, we're going to go through verse 10. Now, there was a man. I forgot my slide. There we go. First three verses here, we're going to see that uh, you have to be born again. Okay, that's what the topic's going to be. Okay, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And he, the man, this man came to Jesus by night. And said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we're going to dissect those three verses here. Okay. So the first thing I want you to see is there's a couple of themes that are through the Gospel of John that are spoken of here in this passage, okay? And the themes are almost synonymous with each other. One is man, okay? And a man comes to him, and you see this in several different places in the Gospel of John, and it is in reference to the state of man outside of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, that they are blind to the truth, right? That they cannot see what is right before them to see. And you're going to see that in this conversation with Nicodemus. This man should have known what Jesus was talking about. He was a teacher of the law. It meant that he actually had the law memorized verbatim, okay? He was a teacher of the law, so he would have had it memorized, possibly in more than one language, okay? He wasn't a stupid man. He was a very smart man. He was a very educated man. And he knew the law of God. And he should have known what Jesus was talking about. Because we just read, it was prophesied in the Old Testament, right? That this would happen, okay? And he doesn't see it at all. And so this theme of a man is the state of man, this this blindness that we walk in, and this unknowing that we just aren't enlightened, okay? And that's connected to the other theme that we see here, and that's darkness. It says that he came to him by night. And people debate whether or not he really came by night, because whether he did or did not, it is absolutely true that what John is trying to communicate is that he came in the way that the world thinks. Does that make sense? Darkness. Okay, he came in the, in the manner of thinking like the world. And the Bible refers to that over and over in the New Testament as darkness, okay? So these are the themes that we see here in what we have 
in Jesus Christ through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit is that we are brought out of darkness and into light. In 1 Peter 2.9, you don't need to turn there, but it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Okay? So this is an amazing aspect of what it means to belong to Jesus in the new covenant. And so we see those themes there. And then we see that he says something that is pretty interesting. He says, when he's talking, he introduces himself and he calls him teacher, which by the way was a a title of great honor because it was the same title that Nicodemus enjoyed. He was a teacher of the law. Okay, And so he, he gives Jesus the same title that he has. It'd be like a professor giving somebody else, you know, the the honor of doctor so and so, even though Jesus didn't have that education, right? So it's kind of a cool thing that he does that. He comes and he gives them that that acknowledgement, and then he says, "We know that you are a teacher come from God." And that word "come" right there uh, is in the perfect tense in Greek, and I mentioned this on Sunday if you were here. But the perfect tense says really cool theological significance in the Bible. Uh, Both uh, Hebrew and Greek, which are the primary languages of the Bible, have something called the perfect tense. And by the way, one of the things that is so amazing about the original languages of the Bible is that they are very precise languages. And they were extremely precise languages, and the rest of the languages that were around them were not. And God chose those languages to write down his word so that we'd know exactly what he was meaning. (laughs) And I think that's really cool. That is really cool. And so one of the things uh, that we see is the perfect tense from time to time. And the perfect tense is a past action with current realities and future ramifications. And so he says, when he says, you have come, he's saying, you have come, and this has ramifications in both directions eternally. And that is absolutely true about the coming of Jesus Christ. Okay, So just a little sidelight. Super cool, though. I love pointing these things out when I see them in Scripture. But he's saying, you've come. And whether Nicodemus said it this way or whether John wrote it that way, because it's theologically true, you know, this is the truth that, we want to, that he wants us to know, is that he has come, and that has ramifications eternally in both directions. Everybody is saved by Jesus' coming. Everybody. Okay? Those who were before him and those that come after him, everyone is saved by the blood of Jesus. All right? And so he, he states this amazing thing. And then Jesus responds with, you have to be born again. And in the Greek, the word born again literally means born from above. Okay? And so he says, you have to have this supernatural birth. That's what he's saying. Okay? So he's not just saying the word again. He's actually saying born from above. Uh, Some of your translations may even render it that way. Um, But that is what he's saying. And then he says, unless this happens, he says, you cannot see the Greek word arao, uh, which there's two different words for seeing in Greek. Uh, One is blepo, which simply just means I see something with my eyeballs. And then there's another one, arao, which means that I come to know and understand something through sight, right? So you learn and experience it. And it'd be like us being like, oh, I see, right? Does that make sense? So that's what you cannot experience and know the kingdom of God unless you've been born again 
from above, he says this is essential. Okay? So, his response to all this, of course, is how can this be? He's highly confused. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly. By the way, whenever it says truly, truly, it's like uh, the word behold. Uh, these are things that uh, were said intentionally for to get your attention. And so whenever Jesus says truly, truly, by the way, does anyone know what word truly is in the Greek? Does anyone know that? It's amen. Okay? Um, which literally means it is true. That's what amen means. Okay? And so whenever you see that in the Bible, Jesus is saying, Amen, amen. This is true. This is true. You need to pay attention to this. Okay? So he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the, into the kingdom of God. Okay? So his response is a little bit, it's half confusion, half honest confusion, and it's half a little snarky. Because he's like, oh, can I just crawl back into my mom and be born again? You know, so he's being a little bit snarky, but he's also honestly confused. Okay? He honestly doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. And so Jesus explains further, and he says that you have to be born of water and spirit. Water can be a reference to two things. One thing it is not a reference to is baptism. Uh, Some people mistake this. It's not a reference to baptism. Water baptism is an is an outward sign of an inward reality, okay, of this reality he's talking about. And so it's referring to, to one of two things, okay? I think it's referring to, and a lot of scholars believe this, that it's referring to the cleansing nature of the Holy Spirit, okay? Uh, there was ceremonial washing that would happen in the Old Testament law. That was a very, uh, that would have been a very understandable concept for Nicodemus to understand, okay? And so he would have been like, oh, okay, you, you're cleansed, right? By this, he would have understood that, okay? Uh, the other it could be referring to is that you have to be physically born because there's water involved with that um, and then receive the Holy Spirit. But I don't think that's what it's meant here. Um, most people that I've read um, believe that it's speaking of the cleansing nature of the dwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So there's this cleansing that needs to take place and then the Spirit of God has to come into you supernaturally. This is what has to happen in order for you to see the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on and he says to him, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? The teacher of Israel. He was obviously, you know, the the high teacher, okay? He's like, you're the teacher of Israel. And yet he says, you do not understand these things. Why did he not understand it? He didn't understand it because he was blind. He could not see it. He had read it. He didn't see it. Okay? And this is evident all the time with people that don't know the Lord, by the way. Um, you, you have to know Jesus in, in order to understand the Bible. You really do. You, you can't understand it without him. Yeah, I heard somebody really smart um, say something not too long ago, and I thought to myself, wow, that's profound that it took that that you didn't understand that like it was a shock to me. It was uh, Jordan Peterson, who's a pretty smart guy, and uh, but he 
mentioned that later on in this passage with Nicodemus, it has a reference to the Son of Man must be lifted up um, like the serpent in the wilderness. And he like, he's all, it took me 30 years to realize he was talking about Moses back in the Exodus <laughs> with the servant in the wilderness. I was like, wow, 30 years for you to figure that out? Um, that's crazy. But, you know, if you don't know the Lord, you can't, you don't see things. You know, you don't, doesn't make sense, right? So we go on here, um, and I wanted to point out to you um, here in verses 6 through 8, he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so he ends there explaining that the, the, this amazing work of the Holy Spirit, this new birth, is not something that you can see with your eyes. Right? You, you, can't, you can obviously witness a regular birth with your eyeballs. Right? He's all, it's not like that. Okay, this is a supernatural thing done by the, the Holy Spirit. And you can't see it, but you can see the effects of it. Okay? And when people are born of the Holy Spirit, they are changed. Okay? And that change sometimes is pretty drastic. Sometimes it's slow. Okay? But there is change, tangible change, when people are born of the Spirit. And then you see that change, and there's a ripple effect of it throughout their life. Okay? So that's what he's saying here. So now what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time talking about the theology of the Spirit, which is known as pneumology. It's a wonderful word, isn't it? Pneumology. It comes from the Greek word pneuma, uh, which means spirit. And so it is the uh, theology, uh, the knowledge that we have of the Holy Spirit. Um, there's a great deal that we have done within Christendom in terms of Christology, uh, we focus a lot on Jesus, and as we should, right? He's, he's amazing, right? We should focus on Jesus. But there is an enormous amount of things written in the library of Christology. And in comparison, there's not a whole lot in the realm of pneumology, of the study of the Holy Spirit. Um, and in that, I just mentioned, I think a lot of times we neglect the Holy Spirit and his significance in the Godhead. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at some critical aspects of the Holy Spirit, and we're not covering it all. There is so much more that I could have said tonight, but we only have so much time. So in that, we're going to really fly over what I think are like the essential aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit and who he is, okay? So the first I want us to see, answer the question, who is the Spirit, Okay. Well, the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, is a person, all right? So you need to understand that. Uh, the creed that we've been studying and reciting, it speaks of all three persons of the Trinity, right? We've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Um, and the Trinity, the word is found nowhere in the Bible. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> but the, there's nowhere in the Bible that there's this word Trinity, Okay? 
It's not found in the Bible. It is a term that we came up with to define the fact that the Bible clearly teaches that there's three persons but one God. Okay, And so we came up with this term, uh, Trinity, and it means triunity or three in oneness. Okay, That's what the word means, triunity or three in oneness. And it, again, is used to summarize the teaching of the Scripture that God is three persons, yet one God. The Holy Spirit is not, and I want you to catch this, the Holy Spirit is not just uh, the force of God or the power of God. He is a person, okay? There are many other religions that believe that God is a, a force, you know? I mean, Star Wars, for instance. You know, uh, there's the force, right? You know, that is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not just this force or this power that is out there. Um, he is a person, okay? And that's a very important distinction between Christianity and many other religions out there that believe in a power that they refer to as God, okay? So he is not just that. He is a person. And I, I want you to turn to, we're going to be in John's Gospel still, but John 14, turn with me there. And I want you to see something as we look at uh, verse 26. So John 14 and verse 26 And Jesus says this, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Okay? So I want you to see a couple of things here. We're going to look at three um, words that are used to describe the Spirit here. First is the word, or the first one I want you to look at is the fact that it says He. He will teach you. You guys see that? That is the personal pronoun, He, in the Greek, and it is referring to the Spirit as a person, right? So the word panuma, Spirit, that we see there, is neuter. But this is the masculine personal pronoun he. Okay? So this would be totally inappropriate grammar wise unless it was intentional. <laughs> okay? And so, very intentionally, John is writing down and telling us no, this spirit of God is a person. Okay? He. All right? And then also, there is another title that the spirit is referred to as, and it is. Uh, rendered helper there. It's translated helper. It's parakletos in the Greek. Um, and it means helper or counselor. And it is always used of a person. Okay? This is something you call a person. It isn't something you call a thing. Okay? So those two things connected with the Holy Spirit here clearly tell us in John's Gospel as Jesus is speaking, this person, the Holy Spirit, He's a person, okay, and that's really important to understand. He's also fully God. That's the other thing you need to know about him. He is a person, and he's also fully God. This is seen in Jesus' command in baptism in Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission. He says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son 
and the Holy Spirit. So he clearly puts the Holy Spirit on the same level as the Father and the Son, which means he's fully God, okay? Another thing that we see, and you can turn to this one, Acts chapter 5. If you go to Acts chapter 5, you'll see this account in which uh, some people do something quite dumb. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So what happened is people were, were selling their belongings and giving it to the church, and, and this was all very wonderful, and they were doing it out of the kindness of their heart. Well, these guys are like, we want to be really holy too. So we're going to sell our stuff, and we're going to tell them that we're giving them all of it, because that's what some people were doing, was giving them all of it. Um, but we're not going to give them all of it. We're going to say we gave them all of it. Okay, Really dumb thing to do, because they had no obligation to give it. And so all they had to do was just be honest and say, hey, we sold our stuff and gave you half. <laughs> like That's all they had to do. But that's not what they did. They said that they gave it all. Okay, But Peter said to Ananias, why... Has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Lie to the Holy Spirit. Okay? So you, you can't lie to a thing, right? This is a person, the Holy Spirit. It says, lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Well, it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your hearts. And he goes on and says, you have not lied to man, but to God. So to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God, right? So we see very clearly here in these two passages that the Holy Spirit is fully God. Now I want to answer the question, what is his role in the Godhead? So you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What is the Spirit's role in the Godhead? Well, the word both in Hebrew and Greek that is translated spirit, it's ruch in the Hebrew, in panuma, in the Greek. They both mean exactly the same thing. They mean breath or wind or spirit. These are the three ways they can be translated into English. Okay, So they mean the same thing. And so the title itself gives us a really good indication of what his role is within the Godhead. And what I want to do is I want us to look at two different things to flesh this out. The first is I want to look at the act of creation. Okay, So you don't need to turn there if you don't want to. But if you want to, Genesis 1, right? Uh, when God created everything. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was, was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the Spirit of God was there, okay? Hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness and called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day, okay? So we see that in creation, that the Holy Spirit was there, hovering over the surface of the deep, okay? 
And then you can turn, if you want to, to John chapter 1, in which we see another viewpoint of the creation account a little bit. Okay? So in John chapter 1, we see something where that gives us a fuller view of what was taking place in Genesis chapter 1. It says, in the beginning, they start the same way, notice that, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, by the way, is Jesus, okay, here in this section. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So we see now that God the Father was there, God the Son was there, and the Holy Spirit was there, all in creation, okay? It says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay? And so we see this full picture now of creation in which the Father is there, the Son speaks, and the Holy Spirit breathes life into creation, right? All three members of the Godhead, all three persons are creating in that event. And so we see that the Holy Spirit's role within the, in the Godhead is he's the means of life. Life, breath comes from him, right? Uh, in the New Covenant, we also see that God breathes life in his spiritually dead people. We saw this prophesied back in Ezekiel that we looked at when we opened. And Jesus, it says in John's Gospel in chapter 20, in John 20, you can turn there if you'd like. So this is after the resurrection. In verse 22, It says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? So we see this connection between the breath of God and the Holy Spirit. Right? This concept of breathing. And that's what I want you to see. Okay? It's the Spirit is involved in life. And there is, without the Spirit, there is no life. And there's two different words used for life in the New Testament. One is bios uh, in the Greek, and it is where we get the word biology, okay? Uh, and this word refers to not really what we use it for in the term biology. It actually refers to the how to sustain life, like your earthly life here, how to sustain it. So all the times in the Bible that that talk about life in relation, or in the New Testament anyway, that talk about life in relation to substance, like having enough food or, you know, clothing, things like this, that's the word used. Is this, this is what it's talking about. It's talking about the things we need to live. Like if you were to say uh, making a living, you would use that word in Greek, okay? That's the idea there, okay? How we sustain ourselves. But then there's another word, zoe, and it is where we get our word zoology from, uh, and it also has nothing to do with that <laughs> in the Greek. Um, 
It has more to do with the quality of life somebody has. Okay, So all the places that speak of the life that we have in Christ, use that word, zoe. This is a different quality of life. It's a different kind of life. It is life in the Holy Spirit as opposed to outside of the Holy Spirit. And so this is the life that the Holy Spirit brings to us in the new covenant in Jesus Christ, is this different quality of life. And that's where, as a Christian, we live in the already but not yet. Okay? Have you ever heard that term before? Raise your hand if you've heard that term, the already but not yet. Okay, some people have not heard that. So, in Christ, we live in the inaugurated part of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus came, the king of heaven came, and he inaugurated the invasion of the kingdom of heaven into our age, okay? So he started that invasion when he came. And part of that invasion is the dwelling Holy Spirit in his people, okay? This is a already but not yet aspect of eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ, is that when he comes, we will then dwell with God face to face, right? And it will be fully realized, and this will be the way it was always meant to be, is that we will have perfect unity and harmony with God, right? But right now in Christ, you have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And that is an aspect of the already but not yet part of the kingdom of heaven. So very, very cool. And then I want to answer, what is his role in salvation? Three things that I want to mention. First is conversion, and then regeneration, and then sanctification. Okay, So conversion and regeneration are almost the same event. Okay, <laughs> but they are different aspects of the same event, if you will. Okay, so conversion, all of it, by the way, is a work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, nobody comes to Christ without the work of the Holy Spirit. So, in order to be converted to Christ, the Holy Spirit has to do something miraculous. He has to open your eyes of your heart to the truth of the gospel. Okay, you have to be awakened to this truth. And so, in order to receive Christ, the Holy Spirit has to convict you of sin and bring you to a state of repentance. Uh, it says in John sixteen eight, and when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so part of the work of the Holy Spirit is that he convicts us of sin, brings us to our awareness that we need Jesus, and therefore, we are now ready to repent. And repent literally means to change the way you think. Okay, The word in the Greek means to change the way you think. Okay, And so you have not, you're not thinking correctly until you learn to think like God. Okay, Because God is truth. He is reality. And if you aren't thinking like him, then you're, you're not thinking correctly. And so you then repent and you change the way you think and you start to learn to think like Jesus... And that causes you to think real thoughts that actually make logical sense, right? So this is conversion. Then what leads directly after that is regeneration, okay? And this is what Jesus was talking about with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, is this amazing miracle of regeneration, of being born again of the Holy Spirit. It is also a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in that he is making us a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
That's what baptism represents, as you've died to your old sinful self, and you've been raised alive in, the, in newness of life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, So this is what happens in the miracle of regeneration. The word in the Greek that's translated uh, regeneration is actually two words uh, put together. It's a compound word. And it literally means if it, to, be, uh, to be born or created again. That's what it means, to be born or created again. Okay, so the word regeneration actually refers to being born again. <laughs> okay, the same thing Jesus said to Nicodemus. That's what the word means. Okay, so this, this is what's happening, this supernatural event through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Titus 3.5, it says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so this event of regeneration, this is why you get to live forever. is because God has cleansed you through the power of the Holy Spirit, and you now have His life in you. And like Pastor Rick has said many times, uh, God is not an abortionist. He doesn't kill things that He brings life to. Okay, And so God has given you life, and you will live forever because His life is in you. This is the miracle of regeneration. You're either alive in Christ or you're not. Okay? There's no like, oh, I'm partially regenerate. There's no such thing. You're either alive or you're dead. Okay? And this is really encouraging news because it, regeneration is not to be confused with sinlessness. Okay? Being made alive in Christ is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in which you are now alive. Okay? spiritually, supernaturally, uh, it does not mean that you are now radically different than you used to be, okay? Uh, Some people, maybe they've grown up in the church, right? And because a lot of times when you grow up in the church, well, you learn to think like Jesus at a young age, right? And when you do that, maybe you don't have some radical conversion experience where, you know, you, you just one day realized, yeah, I do love Jesus, and you get baptized. And, you know, that was my story. I grew up in the church, and I got baptized at eight years old. I love John Piper. He's one of my favorite pastors of all time. And he talks about having a boring testimony. He's all, you should have a boring testimony. You know, and he's all, and just like me, he says. He was baptized at six years old and really hasn't done anything remarkable sin-wise his whole life. It's like, praise God, right? You know, so he probably couldn't tell you this, like, epic moment in his life in which he was like, oh, Jesus, save me, right? You know, he, he grew up in the church, right? So some people who have that story, you know, they feel like, oh, well, maybe I'm not saved. Well, no, you're saved. If you gave your life to Christ, his spirit is in you and you're saved, okay? Uh, you don't have to be a total pagan who then gave their life to Christ and was radically transformed, Okay? So this is an important thing to understand. Also, struggling with sin is not an indicator either that you're not regenerate. Okay, So sometimes you've got the person who is way out here and God got a hold of them and drew them to himself, right? And their beginning of their sanctification process is starting at a different place than somebody who grew up in the church and and wasn't hooked on heroin and, and... lost in prostitution, or whatever the case may be, right? And so they're starting from this very different place, which means they're going to be struggling with a lot of things in their life. 
that are going to make them look not so holy you know, amongst all the other believers at church or whatever. Very important to understand, they are still regenerate. Okay, A person who is growing in Christ is regenerate. Okay, So somebody who is changed and on the path, they are regenerate. doesn't matter where they started on that path. Um, very important to understand. Uh, R.C. Sproul says, Regeneration does not automatically convey sinlessness. It gives new life and direction, but it is a new birth that is only the beginning of sanctification. And so that brings us to our third thing, sanctification. Um, sanctification is not the same thing as justification. I know I'm throwing out all these big words tonight. I apologize. I do actually love them, so I don't really apologize. I love these big words. But uh, sanctification is the process of being made holy. Justification is a legal declaration of blamelessness before God. Okay? So these are two different things. And when you are justified, this happens immediately upon giving your life to Christ. Okay? It says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is all because of the sacrifice of Christ that he made. He appeased the wrath of God for our sins. He rose from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and death. And he's alive and well today, reigning and ruling over all creation. So we are justified through Jesus, but we are sanctified through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, The Spirit is the one who is molding and shaping us and transforming us into the image of Jesus. Okay, And for some of us, this is a slower process than others. Okay, But this is the work of the Holy Spirit, is that he's sanctifying us. Sanctification, um, it is a combined effort between us and the Spirit. So there's a pendulum in which some people are like, oh, I'm going to trust the Lord, you know, and, and he's going to do a great work in me, and I'm not going to really, like, put forth any effort into this whatsoever, okay? And guess what? That doesn't work, okay? It doesn't work at all. It is a combined effort between you and the Holy Spirit, okay? So you can't just be like, oh, I'm just going to be, you know, spiritualize my laziness and my spiritual growth, and that you can't do that, Okay? Uh, the other thing that is also folly is to think that I'm going to get this done, by golly. I'm going to work really hard, and I'm going to be good, by golly. And I'm, I'm going to do this, and, and everyone's going to see that I'm this amazing person in Christ, right? Both of those are going to end utter failure, I promise you, okay? And so there's this balance in the working of the Holy Spirit in our life in which we are relying on, on Him and putting our weight down on Him uh, dependency is a really good way to think about it. You need to be dependent on the Holy Spirit for your spiritual growth, but you also have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so you need to not be battling Him and and just going off your merry way. But as Jesus said, we need to be sanctified through the Word of God. So as we allow God's Word to mold us and shape us and transform us, we are cooperating with the work of the Holy Spirit, and He is then making us more like Jesus. Okay, So it is a combined effort. It starts in regeneration. The moment that you receive the Holy Spirit, it, it begins, but it doesn't stay there. It continues, and it continues in obedience. Okay, So obedience is seen in that we realize that we can't just take um, God's grace for granted. We actually have to do what he says, right? In Romans 6, 19, it says, 
For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So Paul's telling us that we need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and to lean into the process of what the Lord is doing in us and through us through the Holy Spirit. So just as you once obeyed the the sinful desires of your flesh, now you need to obey the Holy Spirit in your life. Okay, So it's through obedience that this sanctification continues. And it is completed in the age to come. And that's a great hope, right? So the work that Jesus began in you, he is going to complete in the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. And then this last part here, what is his role in the life of a believer? A little bit of overlap here, but I wanted to flesh this, all this out. First, he reveals. He reveals awareness of sin, our deep need for Jesus, and also our growing understanding of truth. These are things that we've already mentioned, right? He also unifies us. I alluded to this earlier, but this is one of the aspects of the Holy Spirit is that he unifies us. So he unifies us with God. This is a really important thing. He brings unity with us, between us and God. And in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, it says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so there's this amazing reality that through the Holy Spirit, we are in Christ and we are united with him because of this amazing transformation. And then Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 23, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And so there's this promise here of this indwelling nature, this unity that we have through the Holy Spirit with God. And then also it unifies us with each other. Romans uh, 12, you can turn there if you want. Romans 12, gotta love Romans. So many good things in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 12, Paul talks about how we're unified together. Starting in verse 4, he says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individual members one of another. So we are unified in Christ through the Holy Spirit, and we are one in Him. And He also empowers us. Okay, The Holy Spirit empowers us. He empowers us in two ways, and because of a lack of time, I can't go into all the verses, but he empowers us in gifting, okay? So he gives us spiritual gifts, and that's actually right here where we were, so we will read that one. It says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. And then he says, a prophecy in the proportion of our faith and service and so on. And he says, we are given these giftings in the Holy Spirit for the purpose of building up one another and edifying one another in Christ. This is an amazing thing. The other thing the Holy Spirit empowers us to do is to transform our character. So he also changes our character. You can see that in the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 25. 
excellent display of how God uses the Holy Spirit to transform us. And so now I come to my closing points with two minutes to spare. So we'll see how that goes. Um, that's not working. But that's okay. So how do we live by the Spirit? There are three things that I want to end with tonight on answering how we live by the Spirit. Okay? The first way that we live by the Spirit is we need to focus more on Jesus than on our sin. Okay? The way you folk, the, the way that you grow in the transforming process and, and cooperate with the Holy Spirit is by focusing more on Jesus than on your sin. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews talks about this. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And so we need to look to Jesus in order to grow in our sanctification and our walk with the Lord. There's a guy I know, um, he's long since passed, um, but when I was a kid, he was kind of like a grandpa to me, and he had a plane. He was a pilot, and he, he owned his own bush plane. And uh, one time, he had recently cleaned his plane, and he had a, a runway out in his field. And so when he was landing, he was very concerned about not getting any of the cow manure on his plane. So he was very intently looking at all the cow manure, making sure he wasn't going to hit any of it, and he ran straight into his barn and ripped the wings off his plane. Um, and, uh, and it's a true thing. If you pay attention to all of the sin in your life, you're going to wreck. Okay, you are. You're going to crash and burn if you pay attention to all the sin in your life. But when you focus on Jesus, when you fix your eyes on him, he will send you in the right direction. Okay? And so it is an important reality to remember. Focus more on Jesus than on your sin. Second thing is you need to rest in God's saving power. I hope you caught that as we went through the work of the Holy Spirit, that you saw that from beginning to end, your salvation is not based on you, but on him. From beginning to end, you can't even come to an awareness that you need Jesus without the work of the Holy Spirit. He starts it, and he, and he keeps you. Okay, uh, We didn't have time to look at it, but the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit as the seal of God on you, which is a seal of ownership, Okay, that you belong to God. He keeps you forever for the life and the age to come. And so you need to rest in the saving power of God in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is our means of redemption. The Spirit is our means of regeneration. And it all ends in resurrection. Okay? And so rest in that truth. And third and last thing, you need to lean into your new life through faithful obedience. Okay? Through faithful obedience. You can't be passive about it. Okay? You have to be active and cooperating in the process. So don't take grace for granted. Don't be like those who Paul writes to in Romans chapter 6 and says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And he says, No, don't do that. Okay? If you're in Christ, you live that way. Right? And so in order to grow in Christ, we need to be faithfully obedient to Him. So instead of taking it for granted, 
we need to depend, we need to deepen our love for Jesus and that will move you into faithful obedience, okay? The more you are in awe of who Jesus is and what God has done for you, the more you will want to do what he says, okay? This is a universal truth, okay? When you adore somebody, you listen to them, period. You're like, oh, you're fantastic. I will listen to what you say, okay? And so this is true in all of our relationships, and it's absolutely true in our relationship with God. So if you struggle with listening to God, I encourage you, stop focusing on your lack of obedience and focus on Jesus. And when you look at Jesus and you see how amazing he is, you will grow in your affection towards him and you will do what he says. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 14, he said, all those who love me, obey me. Okay? He's not saying that if you don't obey me, I don't love you. Okay? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, if you love me, you will obey me. That's what happens, okay? It flourishes into faithful obedience. And that's why he goes on in the next chapter, in chapter 15. He says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Christian friend, my parting encouragement to you is that fall in love with Jesus. And he, his spirit will transform you to the, his very image. True obedience comes from adoration, not obligation. We can be good for a little while, but real profound change comes through the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, that you would help us to live out this truth and to be in awe, in awe of your saving power through the Holy Spirit, like from beginning to end. Like, I know we think we came up with the great idea to belong to you, but you gave us that. You made us realize that need. And so may we rest in your saving power and may we... Fix our eyes on you. Let us not be distracted by the things that entangle us. But may we keep our eyes focused on you and that you will transform us as you faithfully said you would through the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that as we do that, as we fix our eyes on you, that we would, each and every one of us, grow deeper in our love and adoration for who you are. And that through that love and that faith, And that your spirit would change us radically to be conformed to the image of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.